Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. A 6-3 decision from the Supreme Court of the United States puts an end to the mandate from the Biden administration through OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, saying that businesses with 100 employees or more need to require employees to be vaccinated. Tony Katz, great to be with you. The Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita joins us right now. He has been part of these lawsuits against the Biden administration, against the mandates. A 6-3 decision from the court. Uh, Sir, take a second. Tell us about what the lawsuit was actually uh, about and then your take on the decision. Hey, Tony, good to be back uh, with you. So, you know, the, the, the there were two lawsuits that were heard recently. Uh, one was the CMS, uh, what we call the CMS mandate, and that was the mandate on our health care workers by the Biden administration that they had to be vaccinated if their employer took Medicaid or Medicare money. Um, and then there was the OSHA rule, the emergency rule, saying that all employers over 100 have to um uh, offer a choice, testing or vaccination to their employees. So uh, the upshot is, is that the court in both these cases focused on statutory grounds and the intent of Congress and not so much on the constitutionality of either of these. Three justices uh, kind of in the minority or in the different opinions uh, talked about the Constitution, but there was no holding from the Supreme Court on whether or not these were even constitutional. And I found I, I found that striking. We argued both that on statutory grounds and on the Constitution, this didn't none, neither of these made sense. And they really followed the constitutional statutory line. That is to say, they found that Congress never intended OSHA to cover public health, for employers to cover public health generally outside the workshop floor. Well, meanwhile, in the CMS case, they said, in fact, that Congress did specifically intend the Health and Human Services Secretary to be worried about general public health. In fact, so much that the HHS Secretary didn't even need to promulgate rules for comment, preliminary rules or proposed rules or anything like that. They could just go and edict this. So I found that kind of surprising that they didn't get to the constitutional grounds and that they, the, the breadth that they found of power that they found Congress gave the HHS secretary and then how they rightly found that the OSHA didn't never complicated anything off the shop floor. So when we take a look at this, there were two decisions made by the Supreme Court. The decision on the business mandate, which is what most of us were, were, were looking at, was a 6-3 decision. You're saying wasn't based on the constitutional grounds, but rather statutory. Congress doesn't... No one has ever given this authority to OSHA through the Department of Labor, so therefore they cannot engage this kind of activity. But on that CMS side, they said, yes, this seems to be within the purview of what it is they can do. As you take a look at this, talking to the Attorney General of Indiana, Todd Rokita, as you take a look at this, let's start with the business mandate side, because you have Indiana moving forward its own bill to do an end to business mandates. What happens when businesses still say, you know what, we want you to get vaccinated and your job's on the line? 
Well, that's the, that's the whole key now. The, the ball moves into the court of state legislators because, you, first of all, you have to assume that the federal government's never going to uh, pass a, a prohibition for, for employers uh, on this. So uh, the only lawmaking left to do is at the state level. And, in fact, that's going on. That debate is going on in the General Assembly right now. Otherwise... Uh, employers, private companies can now in the state of Indiana, because some because some states have passed a prohibition, but in the state of Indiana, employers can still mandate the vaccine if they want as a matter of, of being a, a private employer. Uh, so what the what the Supreme Court decision did in, in this regard is say that there's no federal government mandate to do it so that. So these employers who want to do this vaccine anyway can't use Biden and the federal government uh, as a fig leaf to so cover for their case, real, they, real intent. Real intent. Right. They can't hide behind the Biden administration. Talking to the attorney general of Indiana, Todd Rokita, they can't hide behind that. They, they have to stand up and say, this is what we want. Did this decision, this 6-3 decision against the mandates from Ocean, from the Department of Labor, did this open up the opportunity for the employee to sue the employer? Uh, no, not really. I, I don't see that at all. Uh, it, it, but, uh, you know, what I can say is that this is a big day. The way it was a big day, it was a good day. And it wouldn't have happened if we didn't work so well together with other states, whether it was me and my like-minded colleagues or our offices who put in thousands of hours of briefing time, uh, practice time in front of the, uh, before we got to the Supreme Court and, and then knocked it out of the park in oral argument. Uh, and we have two more cases to go. The Head Start case where two-year-olds and up, if you're in a Head Start program, have to be masked. Uh, and the federal contractor mandate, those those employees who work for uh, employers who contract with the federal government, uh, those may be up at the Supreme Court next. Now, there, we, we, there is a difference between what the, the private sector does and what happens uh, w- w- within government. This decision on uh, regarding HHS, regarding CMS, uh, uh, Medicare and, and Medicaid, saying yes, that the Health and Human Services Secretary can, as, as you described it, by edict, without needing any public comment, yeah. can just say, you have to be vaccinated. Does this have other challenges that can come? Is there another way to go about this? Or is this, a, okay, that conversation is over? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I got a lot of balls in the air right now just on these four suits. So I haven't really analyzed that as I'm working through these opinions. Uh, but I think it's over. Uh, but the scary part here, Tony, is that, uh, you know, and I'm not saying that the, the, a future Supreme Court couldn't judge this on constitutional grounds. I'm saying these opinions don't reach any holding on that. They just simply base it on congressional intent. Uh, but let's assume that that's all they're ever going to consider. That means your Congress at any time could say, could amend the OSHA law and say, you know what? Yeah, I, I want OSHA now to, to part, part of covering safety in the workplace is covering safety at home. You know, the fact of the matter is the, the, the Congress through, through its lawmaking ability could change these laws at any time and make them more encompassing. And that's what we have to guard against. That's why it's so important one way or the other to your question is to try to get a constitutional ruling on this at some point so that we know where the constitutional limits are or not. Let me take it the other way. Let me put you on the spot. Why not? It's fun to do. Uh, sure. 
In Indiana, House Bill 1011, which would prohibit employers from requiring employees to get the vaccine unless the employer offers a religious and medical exemption. I would assume that means that the employer can accept or deny the the exemption. Uh, can states require private businesses not to force uh, vaccine mandates in their businesses if it's indeed their business? Yeah, if, if there's a law that's passed and uh, it, 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 from my perspective, it appears it would be constitutional, they do that all the time, limit businesses' practices. Uh, and, and so this would be no different. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask it a little bit differently. The state can tell private business how to run their business, and we're cool with that? Well, I, I answered your question. I just said, hey, they do it all the time. They put limits on businesses all the time. You can argue whether or not this is a good reason or not to do it. But it happens in lawmaking every day at all, at all levels of government. I, that is actually uh, a very acceptable answer. It's just I, I'm not used to you being so cut to the quick. It, it took me. <laughs> it took me. It did. Uh, well, look, look at it this way. Let me flip it around. Let's say if it's a constitutional matter, like your right to carry a firearm. Uh, should that be limited at the uh, shop door, right? Uh, I think we recently said, no, you, should, you have the right to protect yourself whether you're at work or not, and employers can't limit um, your ability to do that. The question in this case then becomes, is that more of the same thing? Is this about a constitutional right and, and personal responsibility and freedom for employees, or is it more about a law prohibiting more like a law prohibiting how much coal ash you produce, right? So I think that's where the, the line is in terms of constitutional or not. Is there anything to be said when, when people deny religious exemptions? Is, is that lawsuit worthy? I mean, it seems that denying a religious exemption is just based on, on how you feel that day as opposed to some kind of hard and fast rule, some kind of standard that you can apply it to. Yeah, you know, that's right. It's, it's so slippery. I mean, how, who, who are going to be the religious exemption police here, and how are you going to do that fairly? It seems like you have to have a blanket way to do, rule or not. Either someone manifests a good faith religious exemption to you, okay, take it, don't question it, or you don't allow any no matter what they say. Um, I'm obviously for the former version of that. Uh, we have to trust people a little bit more, right, a lot more, in fact. I mean, that's the hallmark of a free republic is to is to uh, um, expect and respect each other based on their uh, individual responsibility to themselves and each other. I mean, that's what makes freedom and liberty work. <laughs> so uh, I, I much rather side on that uh, on that. And I trust my fellow Hoosiers to know when to stay home, to know when to go to work, to know how to protect themselves and have enough respect and courtesy for their fellow Hoosiers to do the same. Attorney General of Indiana, Todd Rokita, I appreciate you being with us. So Elon Musk, he's going to take Doge for Tesla merch. I don't know if he's taking it for a Tesla. I don't know if you can buy a Tesla with uh, Dogecoin, but he'll now take it for the merch, and therefore Dogecoin went up like 25%. One guy can make crypto move this much. I think that's why people don't have faith in crypto. I really and truly do. That's why they're like, ah, this is just a, it's just a bubble. 
I'm look. I, I I own some crypto. I never lie about uh, uh, such a thing. And and because of this, I mean, crypto has gone up, and Bitcoin is is back over forty three thousand. Who knows how long that'll last? And uh, et cetera, and some of the other things. I own little bits and pieces. If I owned big stuff, I would tell you. I'd have to because I'm talking about. It. I'd have I'd have to tell you. But man, Elon Musk just he tweets out one thing and. It's, it's 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 off to the races. It's absolutely positively incredible. But let me let me shift gears. Let me shift gears and get into a conversation about Indianapolis. In the discussion of Indianapolis, we have a murder rate that is flat out through the roof. I believe it was through the first eight days of twenty twenty two. We had eight murders. Tony Katz. Great to be with you. But there are people having success in keeping areas and neighborhoods safe. The Butler-Tarkington area has gone a full year without a murder. Now, it's a weird thing to celebrate because that should be the standard. But right now, it isn't the standard. But this has taken place, I think, the last four out of five years. And the Butler-Tarkington area is one of those areas where the Reverend Charles Harrison of the Indy 10-Point Coalition, has been doing his work. He joins us right now. And, and sir, uh, we talk often about the Indy 10-Point Coalition, and we talk about um, its success, but we don't often get into where it originates from and what it's all about. So so give me the the, the, the 30-second elevator pitch on how the Indy 10-Point Coalition comes to be and the work that it's doing now in Butler-Tarkington and other areas. Well, the Indianapolis 10-Point Coalition... um you know, started in 1999, um, and we uh, started under the Goldsmith administration, and, and we got the model from Boston, uh, from the Boston Ten Point Coalition, um, and working in collaboration with Boston uh, Police Department, uh, the city, and the business community and neighborhoods in Boston. So that's where the concept of the 10-point model, which is more of a village approach to trying to address the issue of violence. And Boston still today is probably the best city in the country um, that is reducing violence. Last year, in 2021, with almost 700,000 people, they had around 40 murders for the entire city. And when we take a look at Indianapolis, well, we did not manage to do uh, that well. As you are somebody who is on the streets, you're talking to families, talking to people, talking to neighborhoods. Uh, we've had conversations before on, on my show with the OGs, right? So these these are guys who right. have been through the hard times, been through the criminal justice system, want to create a better life out there on the streets. What are our people telling you? What is it that you're seeing and experiencing that's leading to such incredible crime and violence in our city? Well, I think there are several things that is really leading to it now. I think one is our broken judicial system uh, where particularly repeat violent offenders are arrested and they're you know brought back out on the streets. And a lot of times, Tony, that leads to street justice if uh, people on the street feel like you haven't served your time for the crime that you committed. It leads to street justice. It leads to retaliation. And and we don't have the neighborhood-driven uh, approaches where we have empowered neighborhoods um, to be involved in reducing violence in their own areas, which was so successful in this city from about 1999 through 2012. And, and I think those are 
the changes that have occurred, I think, over the last uh, eight years that has led to this surge in violence in Indianapolis. Talking to the Reverend Charles Harrison of the Indy Ten Point Coalition. You're talking about prosecutors, not actually prosecuting. You've got police that are doing uh, their their work, but you don't have the prosecution taking place. People don't end up in jail, and you're referring to it as a, a level of street justice. Is that something, in your view, that Mayor Hogsett should be focused on? Well, I think I think the mayor should. I think our elected officials should, and I think they ought to listen to the people in the community. And we're talking particularly to repeat of violent offenders who keep getting rearrested by law enforcement and put right back out on the streets, and then they become the victims and the suspects, uh, you know, in the violence that we're seeing in the streets. So we're going to have to address that as a community from the mayor uh, to all of our elected officials, both uh, locally and, and on the state level. But how does it connect this one-two punch of the Indy 10-Point Coalition is actually on the streets, walking the streets well into the evening, and now street justice doesn't occur. Is it just because there are eyes on the prize? There's got. It seems to me there'd be something more than that, some other kind of connection point. Well, well, yes, because part of what we tried to do is we tried to address those conflicts on the streets um, and engaging individuals that we have relationship with. So uh, certainly we tried to um, stop uh, any particular uh, retaliation or conflict that may lead to violence in partnership with police and other community groups in the neighborhood. So we're all working together in trying to prevent you know, these acts of violence, but you have to be on the streets. You have to have relationships with the individuals who are most likely to be involved in it in order to do that. So when we're out on the streets, Tony, you know, late in the evening, we hear so much, you know, and because we have relationships, we try to intervene in that. And where we cannot intervene, we certainly get law enforcement involved. Now, that part is the part that I think that uh, uh, throws some people. So give me an idea of where Indy 10-Point Coalition is, maybe better said, give me an idea of where Indianapolis is and the neighborhoods you serve and their relationship with police. If I listen to mainstream media, it's hate, 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 hate. You tell me what it is. Well, that's not true. I I, I think... You know, particularly here in Indianapolis, I think the Indianapolis Police Department has a great relationship with most neighborhood and community leaders in the city. We are often in conversation with each other, particularly me and the district commanders, about what's going on in the neighborhoods, what I'm hearing, what they're hearing, and how we can work together with other groups in trying to uh, get in front of the violence before it occurs. And when it does occur, we certainly try to uh, address the violence that has occurred and get the individuals involved in it off the street. So there is daily conversation between law enforcement and community leaders, and it may be a surprise to people, but it is happening. Reverend Charles Harrison, the Indy 10-Point Coalition, Indy 10-Point Dot org. I, I'm thrilled uh, for the success, and I'm glad you took the time to be with us today, sir. All right. Thank you for having me. So pull me closer. Why don't you pull me close? Why don't you come on over? I can't just let you go. Oh, baby. Why don't you just meet me? So 
we got a full couple weeks under our belt in the state house. And as much as they may not want it to be true, this is a social issue session. It doesn't mean that only the social issues are being addressed. Tony Katz, great to be with you. Facebook Tony Katz Radio, in case you didn't know. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Eric Berman is the dean of the State House. He is, of course, the top dog political reporter at 93.1 FM WIBC. He joins us right now for a little bit of Indiana State House review. And, and before we get to the things that we're not even paying attention to, <laughs> am I wrong in my assessment, Eric Berman, that this is a social issues uh, uh, session and there is no avoiding it? Um, well, there, there's avoiding it, but this is a choice that they've made. And I think you're absolutely right that it is a social issue session. People asked me back in November what the big issues were, were going to be, and they, I missed it completely, quite honestly. I, I thought this would be a relatively calm session. You know, last, last year was, you know, budget sessions are always fiscal, but there were so many big investments that the state made, and those even things that weren't the budget, um, that's what dominated the session. I didn't see this train coming, and I think in part Glenn Youngkin affected that, certainly uh, with the critical race theory bills that are moving in both chambers, but a lot of the other social issues, the, uh, these are the ones, possibly because nature abhors a vacuum, but for whatever reason, these are the bills that are moving and moving quickly, and I do think that's going to be the through line of this session. You've got uh, Senate Bill uh, 167. Of course, that's the big one from Senator Scott Baldwin and the Democratic Party uh, capitalizing on on some some bad talk or some sloppy talk or however you want to describe it from the senator to try and destroy this piece of legislation on the critical race theory on the idea of being transparent. And that's where it gets kind of interesting, because even Beth Niedemeyer, superintendent of the Noblesville schools, while she doesn't favor anything that would mean you don't get to teach. She favors the idea of transparency. It was a very interesting letter uh, that she wrote uh, publicly. It seems to me that this bill is just simply too much, but broken up into some component pieces, it might actually have a future. What are you hearing about its future? Well, I think it'll probably go to the House floor. I beg your pardon, it is going to the House floor. It passed the House committee this week. Um, and the Senate version is extremely similar. I would assume that it will move as well. Whether a final version passes, that remains to be seen. Because what what Dr. Niedermeyer laid out, and she's not alone on this, this was pretty much the unanimous testimony from the teachers' groups and the superintendents and the principals, all the folks who testify in education issues. Uh, what they've all said, is, look, we're for transparency, we're for parental involvement, we think we do lots of things in parental involvement anyway, we're all for that. Where they get concerned, well, actually, they get concerned on two fronts. One is the bureaucratic element, that this potentially creates lots of paperwork and lots of litigation. The second thing, though, is the content of it, going beyond just the transparency issues to this list of what uh, Ed Delaney, one of the House Democrats, called the eight sins laid out in the bill, these eight categories of things that teachers should not talk about. And the concern from teachers and superintendents is when you lay out things that teachers can't talk about, you've got to make sure that you draw those very specifically so that it's clear what's allowed and what isn't, so that teachers aren't afraid to talk about racism or Nazism or Marxism, all the things that that, that got Scott Baldwin in trouble last week. So it's, it, it's interesting, and I'll speak out of it from the political side, not 
not uh, going back to you uh, on a news side, um, that it would seem to me that that is an admission that it is okay to draw a line, which would signal to me that there's a very open door for future sessions for this to come back. Talking to Eric Berman, the chief uh, political reporter and the dean of uh, the General Assembly, the dean of the House there for 93.1 FM WIBC. Uh, One of the other things that has moved forward is this lawful carry uh, provision. It is through the House, I believe, on its way to the Senate. Uh, It kind of got thrown out in in a bit of a a shadowy way last year, the idea of constitutional carry, where it just died in committee and then everyone can point fingers and nobody has to admit anything. Are they going to bring this to a vote this year? Are they going to try and make this go away? Short answer, I have no idea. Um, you, you, that, that's exactly what happened last year. It, uh, it passed the House by almost an identical margin to what it passed by uh, this week. Um, and then it just didn't get to a vote in the Senate, whether that was because there were other things going on or people wanted to bury it. Um, that, that's up in the air. What, uh, what the Senate President Pro Tem, Rod Bray, has said is, well, this isn't an identical bill to last year. We're, we're going to have to look at it. Uh, what happened last year doesn't necessarily predict what's going to happen this year. Um, I think that remains to be seen. There's a couple of new senators, probably not enough to uh, to shift the balance if that if having the votes is the issue. Um, but I think we'll find that out next month when the Senate starts looking at House bills. Now let's get into some of the other big ones that are really affecting Hoosiers. Certainly, while I'm a guy who favors uh, lawful carry, constitutional carry, I am very confused by the Republican Party and their actions sometimes. The big one is the Indiana House bill to ban employer vaccine mandates. Now that that has advanced, where is this in the Senate? And does Governor Holcomb have any appetite to sign that legislation? You know, this might be one of those issues that goes down to the last day of the session, which uh, this year will be mid-March, remember, short session. Um, It's going to pass the House. That much is clear. What the Senate has done is, you know, they have a a vaccine mandate limit bill as well, but they've broken it into a couple of pieces. Remember, one of the, uh, where this all started was when Governor Holcomb came out before the start of the session in November and said, look, we all want to bring an end to the uh, emergency declaration. Here's the three things that we need to do. There's three things that are in our executive orders that really need to continue, notably extra federal funding for Medicaid and food stamps. Put those into state law and we can can end this thing. And the Senate has a bill that would do that and then they have a separate bill limiting vaccine mandates. The House, which is moving faster on this, they're taking the lead on it, put those all into one bill. And so the first problem Governor Holcomb is going to have is Look, I asked for three things. What are we doing here? The second problem is he has said he has concerns about the bill. He's not been specific about them, but he's made clear that he doesn't doesn't really like it the way it stands. Where those negotiations that are going on behind the scenes go, what, what this bill looks like in its final form, whether it goes so far that Holcomb would veto it, whether a veto would get sustained, which is extremely doubtful, weak veto state, all of those, I think, are up in the air. But this is going to be a long, long debate about uh, what what is good policy and how do we draw it again? How do you draw the line so what you're trying to do is what you actually do? As I always ask you, Eric Berman, during the State House review, what is the piece of legislation we're not paying attention to that we should? 
you know, I thought I had a great answer to that this week, and then people started paying attention to it. So I don't know if this is the best answer. There probably needs to be more attention, and I'll have a story on this next week. There is a bill which has gotten a hearing and will get a vote next week to put party affiliation on the ballot for school board. Remember, school board is a nonpartisan office in Indiana. Actually, in most states, of 43 of the 50 states, it's a nonpartisan office. And there is a bill. It would not create a primary. You would run in the general election without everybody's on the same ballot. But it would say on the ballot, Tony Katz, Republican, or Joe Biden, Democrat, or you could list yourself as an independent. Um, that's getting a lot of attention. So, well, that's starting to get attention, I should say. Um, once again, the the school boards association says this is a bad idea. This will politicize things. The folks who have introduced this have said well, this is a, a way to have some idea what people stand for before before you go into the ballot into the voting booth. So that that's going to get more attention. Uh, than it already has. And, and this is one of the mysteries of the Senate um, and sometimes even the House. You can be doing two things at one time. This is why we have very talented leaders, very talented staff. Uh, but number two, we do have to understand, and I certainly see it as someone that was there on January 6th, as someone that has seen the ongoing actions after that. This is a very essential point uh, in America. And we may not have the public on our side, but we need to keep talking about this to actually point out uh, about the, the danger that we're seen. Uh, I don't believe we're ever going to have another physical military coup. I'm sorry, not military, physical coup like we saw on January 6th. I think the coup that we're going to see is going to be staffed by, you know, men and women in very well-dressed suits in our courts, running for secretary of states, running for the county boards, the electoral boards. Uh, and for everything that we do between now and then, if we don't get uh, Voting Rights uh, Act passed, we don't have some of these protections, uh, you know, there will need to be a physical coup. They will win this uh, on election day by not counting votes or just when joe biden said it you thought it was just the ramblings of an old man yelling at the cloud screaming get off my lawn but when it's representative ruben gallego progressive out of arizona you realize oh my this is how they plan on scaring people if you let those wascally republicans which have won state legislatures and governor's races all across the country, engage in voting rights, well, what they'll do is they just won't count your vote. That's why we need to do this. That's why we need to federalize it. Because those Republicans, they just won't count your vote. That's what they're going to do. Not count your vote. Well, if you are talking about going full on on the fear factor, hot diggity dog. Ain't this a last gasp? Tony Katz, great to be with you, Tony Katz, today. Absolute pleasure to be here, guys. Ah, holy, holy cow. I mean, you thought this for, from Joe Biden was, you know, just a just a thing, you know? You didn't know that this was, was meaningful. But I'm not sure. But one thing for certain... One thing for certain, like every other major civil rights bill that came along, 
If we miss the first time, we can come back and try it a second time. We miss this time. We miss this time. And the state legislative bodies continue to change the law, not as to who can vote, but who gets to count the vote. Count the vote. Count the vote. Now it all makes sense, right? Why is he screaming at who gets to count the vote? He's quoting Stalin. Oh, that's the plan. The Republicans are secretly the commies, even though it's the leftists that support all the Marxism. Now I get it. Now it makes sense. Uh, I believe. I believe. And uh, uh, Josh, you've been filling in for uh, for producer Ari this week. Uh, you, you correct me if, if I'm wrong. I believe the proper term is projection. Sounds right to me. Right. You, they see it in themselves, and then they 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 apply it uh, on to everybody else. You know, I mean, I actually have, if you want to know how uh, members of the Progressive Party um, talk to each other, I actually have some some really secret audio, this has never been released before, of progressives passing each other in the halls uh, of Congress. You're a little bit racist. Well, you're a little bit too. I guess we're both a little bit racist. Admitting it is not an easy thing to do. But I guess it's true. Between me and you, I think. Everyone's a little bit racist sometimes. So that's it. Very rare. You don't often catch that kind of thing being discussed in the halls of Congress. But but we have have friends. We have have all sorts of of ways here. This is going to be the thing. Sunday shows, this is what they're going to talk about. This is what they're going to talk about. This is where they're going to try and gauge the fear. You have to vote for the Democrats because those those Republicans they won't they won't couch your vote. And if we don't win, if we don't get this done the federal level, well, then it's the end of times. You know what they're setting up? They're setting up the idea that there are no fair elections in America unless it happens their way. They're setting up the idea that there is not fairness in presidential elections. But it was totally on the up and up when Biden won. But now there's no more fairness because we said you have to have an ID. You know, I've said this many times and it's true. The idea that the the political left would say to somebody because of the color of their skin, they're not capable of getting an ID. Remember, an ID is racist unless you need that ID to get into a restaurant in Washington, D.C. to also prove that you're vaccinated. Right then, an ID is not racist, but an ID to vote, totally racist. So now you're going to go around telling people who are black or who are Asian or who are Hispanic, you're not smart enough to get an ID. I just want to be in the room when you do it with a, with a, with a bourbon in one hand and popcorn in the other, just to see how they beat the crap out of you. It's insane. It is so bigoted. As to be believed, it's it's remarkable. And they do it with a straight face. Stunning. Meanwhile, the Republican National Committee is already discussing pulling out of presidential debates. This is a very interesting, proactive fight. And part of the legacy of Donald Trump, for sure. They are planning a rules change that would force presidential candidates seeking the Republican nomination to sign a pledge saying they will not participate in any debates sponsored by the Commission on Presidential Debates, also known as the CPD. 
They're looking for another partner. They're saying that the commission on presidential debates isn't honest, isn't up to snuff, and is biased. That's, that's their argument. And they're not necessarily wrong about that argument, just so we're clear. What's very interesting here is that this early on, they have made the stand. They have said, this is where we're at. Now the question comes, do Republicans rally around this? There's an argument to be made that if Republicans rally around this, first, it really does move the electorate. They're like, yeah, way to fight back. I don't know if you're old enough to remember Candy Crowley in the Mitt Romney election, but that's what you're fighting against. Way to fight back. Good job. And if you can get Republicans to rally around this or conservatives to rally around this, now they realize, wait a second, we can agree on something. If we can agree on this, maybe we can find one more thing to agree on. This is very heartening. Now, you understand how it's going to get played by the left, how it's going to get played in media. Oh, they, they, they don't want a, an honest debate. They're afraid of, of the subjects. That's an easy one to slap down. We want to be active participants in who engages the debate. But we're willing to debate. Just because you say it has to be that way doesn't mean it has to be that way. Just like when the Democrats scream, we're the only ones who can keep safe elections. Well, that's not true because nonstop, incessant mail-in balloting doesn't keep an election safe. Have a brilliant weekend. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio, everything at TonyKatz.com. Monday, everyone. Take care.